Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. What do you need to know? Statutes, cases, the law regarding police work in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And today we're going to focus on photo arrays and show-ups, lineups, identifications by witnesses. What's the law surrounding when police can show a witness to a crime a single photograph? Or when do they have to show a photo array? When can they bring a suspect to the scene and say, hey, is this the guy who just robbed you? And this was a topic that was suggested by someone a few months ago in a class, but it's come up, it just came up just a few weeks ago in a case called Sample versus Commonwealth from Northampton. And it also came up earlier this year before the Court of Appeals in a case called Ray versus Commonwealth from Radford. And both of these cases, I think, are great examples of how police can use single photos, sometimes lawfully, uh, to show witnesses. They don't necessarily always have to show a photo array, but it's hard to know when are you supposed to show a photo array and when is it okay to show a single photo or actually show the suspect themselves. So let's frame the issue, right? What happened in Sample, for example, the case in Northampton? Well, that was a robbery case. Uh, the victim, the guy comes up, he's wearing a mask actually over his nose and his mouth, and he tries to rob the victim at gunpoint. They get into a fight, they get into a struggle, they struggle for a while. Um, the victim is up close face-to-face -face with the attempted robber uh, for a while, and then finally the robber escapes, he runs away, he runs off in a particular direction. And the victim describes the person in such elaborate detail that even though the person's mouth and nose were covered, the officer says, man, I, I think I know exactly who you're talking about. Uh, and that person also lives in that direction of travel. So he pulls a photograph up of the defendant. Now, this is all happening within 30 minutes of the robbery happening. And he says, what about this guy right here? Is this Does this look like the guy that tried to rob you? And the victim immediately says, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's definitely the guy. That's definitely the guy who just tried to rob me. Uh, they go, they track him down. Uh, they, during the fight, the guy dropped his gun. So DFS, they, they take the gun, they send it to DFS, and it has the guy's DNA all over it, including on the trigger. So there's no question it's him. But the question is, was it lawful to show him a photograph? In Ray versus Commonwealth, that's a case from February from Radford, where there had been an informant who was making controlled buys from this person for from Mr. Ray uh, several times. The informant knew him before the police were, uh, were uh, sent him to make controlled buys. And he'd known him for two or three years. He saw him on a weekly basis for two or three years. And the officer says, all right, just to be clear, we're talking about the same guy here because you just know him by nickname. Um, this guy right here, this, and he shows the photograph. Is this the guy that we're talking about? That's the guy that you're, you know, that you've been buying from? And the informant says, yeah, yeah, that guy right there. Now, these two examples are very common examples, I think, of how police sometimes will show a photo, a single photo array, right? Or in the robbery instance, maybe not even a single photo. If, if police had gone running, running and, and found the guy running away, uh, I think a lot of officers would have brought the guy back and said, hey, right here, is this the guy that just tried to rob you? And the question is, is that admissible in court? Is that lawful or is there something wrong with that? And this was the question that uh, somebody asked me, hey, can you talk about this issue? And, and so I thought it would be a great topic for today. So, you know, we're talking about a bunch of different things, right? Show-ups, that's when you actually bring the suspect to the uh, victim or bring the victim to the suspect potentially to the in, into the vicinity of the crime. 
for immediate identification. So you're going to do this right after the crime has taken place. And show-ups are, generally speaking, lawful, right? Uh, the question is always, is there something in it, though, that creates a substantial likelihood of misidentification? In other words, what's the language the police use? Do they point to the guy? Do they uh, put a gun in his hand? You know, do they put the mask back on him or something to make him make the make the, the mask from the scene so that it makes it look like clearly it's got to be the same guy because he's wearing the same clothes or something like that? Is there something that they're doing to create a substantial likelihood of misidentification? That's where you can run into trouble. But at the heart of it, there's a recognition from the courts that show-ups are often the most practical way to confirm or dispel an officer's belief that a suspect is the perpetrator of the crime, right? We want fresh, accurate identifications that can allow us not just to immediately identify a suspect, but immediately release somebody who's innocent, right? And then allow police to go back out and search for the fleeing culprit. Show-ups are designed just as much to uh, exonerate the innocent as they are to identify the guilty, and they can be reliable, right? Uh, even if the you know if it takes place, you know, a matter of minutes. Uh, for example, in samples, thirty minutes after the crime took place, right? Uh, and so it can be considered to be reliable by a court. A a lineup, you can do a lineup live, where you actually live line people up. We don't really do that anymore. Or we can do photo lineups, right, where we take maybe six photographs with similar-looking similar individuals and we present them to a victim or a witness to confirm or dispel the belief that one of these people may be a, a suspect. And most typically when we're doing photo lineups, we're either doing them as individual one-by-one -one lineups or we're doing a photo array where they're presenting, presenting the array uh, simultaneously or sequentially. So a sequential lineup is a photo lineup in which people are presented to a witness one at a time rather than in any sort of group, whereas a simultaneous photo lineup or photo array is where you take everybody together, and, and the classic one is this six-person array that you've always seen or sitting around, right? Now, the whole question of identifications by witnesses is something that has become extremely controversial in the last 10 or 15 years. There's been a lot of focus on it, especially by the various innocence projects. And in 2014, DCJS rewrote its model policy on identification by witnesses and started out by saying, you know, misidentification, uh, DCJS wrote here, plagued, in their words, 74% of the nation's first 20, 273 DNA exonerations. And there was at least one misidentification in 203 of the wrongful convictions that were proven to be wrongful by DNA testing. And so in the eyes of DCJS in 2014, they were very concerned about how misidentification played a role in wrongly convicting people, convicting the wrong person. And so the General Assembly also enacted a code section, which is 19.2390.2, that requires all law enforcement agencies to have a, uh, a written lineup policy. So your agency likely has a written lineup policy for how lineups are to be done. DCGS then produced a model policy in 2014. And when they produced this policy, they expressed a concern that, you know, that, that police were using outmoded methods to identify people, and especially they targeted 
uh, the little sort of six-person photo array and said, we got to stop doing it that way. The DCGS model policy has some really good features in it that research has demonstrated over and over again are, uh, are uh, effective ways and important ways of making sure you convict the guilty and exonerate the innocent. And as it turns out, these are things, frankly, that have been part of the law for many years. We, we, we don't want, we have always said we don't want police identification procedures to be suggestive, to suggest that somebody has, has done something uh, which might override a witness's own memories or own beliefs. So one of the most important things, right, is blind administration. You can do things to suggest that somebody is the perpetrator if you know who the perpetrator is, and you can do those things by accident without realizing it. Things that you can do to suggest to a person, maybe, you know, by things you don't even realize you're doing with your face or your eyes or whatever to indicate this person either, it, you think that the person either is or isn't the perpetrator. So blind administration is a really important feature of effective uh, photo identification procedures. And also collecting and recording a confidence statement from a witness. The research is very clear that a witness's purported and stated confidence about an identification, as it turns out, is a very high predictor of whether the witness is accurate or not. One thing that the research into, uh, into cases that were uh, innocent people were convicted of crimes that they didn't commit was that the witnesses, when they made their identification, were very equivocal in, in those cases and would say, you know, I'm not sure, or I think this probably is the guy. But if you look at their identification, I don't think in, any, in almost none of those cases were the witnesses express any real certainty. On the other hand, if you look at cases like Sample, for example, right, where he identifies the person and later DNA indicates it absolutely is the guy, Sample even though he didn't see the guy's nose and mouth, is absolutely convinced that is definitely the guy. Immediately upon seeing the picture, yep, that's definitely the guy. Absolutely, absolutely, that's the guy right there. That statement of confidence, as it turns out, is something that the research says you should take very seriously. And so collecting and recording a statement of confidence from witnesses is very important. Then DCJS goes on to say that they want people to do sequential but not simultaneous long uh, uh, lineups. Well, this is interesting. So there was early research done into whether or not sequential versus simultaneous lineups were correct and were the most accurate way to do things. You know, we've been doing these six-person lineups since, as anyone can tell, basically since more or less the, maybe the early 1930s. It's not clear who invented it. Uh, it's not clear how it came about. Some people think it came from the FBI. Some people may think it may have come from a large metropolitan police department and then made it to the FBI. No one's really sure who invented it. But there was a belief for a long time that that six-person line, simultaneous lineup procedure was somehow wrong. And in 2014, DCJS sort of highlighted that research and said, yeah, simultaneous lineups are wrong. We have to do them sequentially. What's interesting, though, is that subsequent research has demonstrated 
that simultaneous lineups are in fact diagnostically superior to sequential lineups. And there are labs throughout the United States, um, San Diego, a guy named John Wickstead, um, Chad Dodson at the University of Virginia, um, the National Academy of Sciences uh, uh, itself did a study. And they had figured out that it turns out that this six-person array that we came up with, that some law enforcement officer, some detective somewhere came up with on his own uh, in the 1920s or 1930s, we don't know who it was, uh, it was never scientifically studied, turns out to be probably the most accurate way to, deter to, to do a photo ray. Uh, and that the sequential lineup procedure is not better, and it may, in fact, be worse at being accurate than the simultaneous array. Now, DCJS hasn't fixed its policy. They don't, they didn't acknowledge this. A letter was sent to them by the Virginia Association of Commonwealth Attorneys pointing out, hey, you know, you guys are actually wrong about the research. Uh, the research is, is better now, but they didn't, anyway, they haven't reacted to that. They sort of said, okay, fine, whatever, didn't really change the policy. Um, but what does matter? I mean, at the end of the day, sequential, simultaneous, okay, fine, whatever. The point is, your goal as a law enforcement officer is always to avoid anything that would be impermissibly suggestive and instead pro, uh, make sure that your photo identification or in-person identification procedure is reliable and admissible in court. So what do you got to make sure you do? Blind procedures, definitely. Standardize instructions, absolutely. If you're going to do photo a photo array, you definitely want to follow the standard instructions in your policy. Uh, again, this has been found to be very important in research. And then again, recording witness confidence levels. How confident is the witness? That's crucial. Because again, if you study these exonerations under DNA, it's clear that in uh, if where the initial ID was recorded, the eyewitness was initially uncertain about the identification. And that initial confidence is very indicative of accuracy. How confident are they later on? That's not a very, very indicative, but the initial statement that they make. And then you want to look at factors, right? And this plays into, too, whether it's okay to show a single photo or not. Um, how much time has passed? How much stress was involved in the incident? Um, how long was it that the person was exposed to the face of the other person? What was the distance? What was the lighting? Was there a weapon involved? Were they focused on the weapon or were they focused on the offender, right? So in sample, you know, they're they initially, sure, he's focused on the weapon, but then they get into a fight and he's face-to-face -face and he's struggling with this guy. So um, he's, got, he's very close to him. He's not focused on the weapon. He's focused on the guy. Um, was there a cross-racial issue? Um, these factors do make memory worse. But what's important to notice is that they don't necessarily make an identification less reliable. So when you talk about passage of time, that doesn't actually have much of an effect on my ability to identify somebody. It can hurt my memory, but that factor doesn't make the ID very much reliable. In sample, he's, he's only in there for a very short period of time. But his uh, memory, as it turns out, was extremely reliable. And it was, again, tested by DNA, fortunately. Um, and so all this stuff, you know, all these factors are things that you want to document. But at the end of the day, uh, they don't, the research says that although they may hurt somebody's memory over time, if you show up right after an incident has taken place, uh, a witness may still be able to make a very strong identification based on a brief exposure to somebody. So constitutionally speaking, what's the rule, right? What are courts going to go on here? What are the important things that courts are going to rely on? Well, there's no requirement that you have 
uh, the photographs, that the photographs be identical, right? If you're going to show a photo array. It's good to have people who are similar in height, have similar facial features, similar complexion, similar age, uh, presence or absence of facial hair, because it's going to make that identification more reliable in court. It's going to look like a better identification in court. It's going to be more persuasive, right? And of course, it avoids a situation where you're going to impermissibly suggest to the witness that this is the person who robbed them. You have five people with facial hair and one person doesn't. And the witness says the person didn't have facial hair. You're, you're, you're running a risk that they're going to identify the wrong person. Um, but there's no requirement constitutionally that they all look a certain way other than the fact that you're not you're constitutionally you cannot single out the accused from the rest right uh, that's the one thing that you cannot do you can do an in-court identification frankly that's not impermissible in court but the question is is that very persuasive under the circumstances to a jury probably not it's better to have identification right after the offense or if you can't to do a photo array a good photo array following your agency's procedures that's going to be more effective evidence in court um, but what we're going to be looking at constitutionally is is there some kind of police pressure on the witness to identify the suspect is there going to be some statement from the officer that implies that the perpetrator is present in the photo id or the perpetrator that they're showing is in fact the person who committed the offense um, Charity versus Commonwealth talks about making how important it is to tell a witness they take your time and don't worry if you can't identify somebody, right? That language that we give, that you probably give in your standard procedures is really important language to a court uh, that we're not putting pressure on witnesses to make identifications. We're failing court identifications are, are being ruled to be inadmissible in situations where there's a substantial likelihood of some irreparable misidentification, where the police have arranged suggestive circumstances that lead uh, the witness to identify a particular person as the perpetrator of the crime. Uh, and the and once police have done that, there's a view that after that, it can't be fixed. Because of the police pressure, the witness is, is identifies somebody wrongly and then thereafter believes that this is the person who committed this offense, right? And so unduly suggestive is is basically that kind of situation we imagine where police say basically, hey, over here, this is the guy who did it, right? Just tell us this is the guy. We think this is the guy who did it. Don't you agree? Isn't this the guy who did it, right? Um, how do police do that? I mean, obviously, nobody's going to really do that. That's stupid. But if you keep showing the victim the same photo of a single suspect, right? So the victim looks at several photo arrays, and the photo arrays all have different people, but the same guy keeps showing up in the same photo array, that's telling the victim, hey, you're getting it wrong. Identify this guy. If you single out a single suspect in the photo array, that's going to be uh, impermissibly suggestive. Or somehow point to somebody and say, hey, look over here. Isn't this the guy who did it? Right. Um, but again, the question here is, what is it that makes a identification inadmissible in court? Or when it makes it, on the other hand, what would make it admissible in court? Right. So. Um, when you think about, you know, example cases, right, uh, you have plenty of cases with in-court IDs, and that's obviously somewhat suggestive where the courts have still said, yeah, the victim pointing at the defendant for the first time in court, uh, that's not necessarily impermissibly suggestive, right? But when you're doing, as a law enforcement officer, if you think about doing a photo array, right, um, Charity versus Commonwealth is a case where the, the victim had seen the defendant for about 17 seconds and had come within 10 feet of him 
and seven months later looked at a photo array and identified the defendant. And in that case, the court said that was proper, that was admissible. So you look at those common ideas, you know, oh, the person only saw him for 17 seconds, and it was a very stressful situation, and it was only seven months ago. Well, it didn't make the identification inadmissible in court. Now, it certainly gave an argument to the defense that maybe she didn't have a good memory seven months later, but uh, the, the photo array, that was still admissible in court. In Curry, um, she looked at a photo a photo array three days after the crime. And again, the court found that that was okay, um, even though there was some argument that she, that, that she might have seen him somewhere else in some other situation. It was still admissible in court. But more recently, there was a case called Scott versus Commonwealth. And Scott is a case from just a couple of years ago where the defendant was wearing a ski mask and robbed a couple at gunpoint. And this was a case where we did a, a live show up, right? So we're not doing a photo array. After capturing the defendant right nearby, right after the offense took place, uh, the police put him in handcuffs and at that point separate the victims and say, hey, look, we want you to look at a guy. Um, we're going to take you to a location to look at somebody. And again, maybe it's the person, maybe it's not the person, take your time, you know, they follow, they, they give them all the, correct, the good instructions that we would like to see you give. But again, it's a single person, it's a single photo, not even, it's a single person uh, show up here. We don't have a lineup or anything like that. And when they get to the location, both victims immediately say, yes, that's the guy. They're very clear about that. They do it separately. They notice his facial features, his height, his weight, his body structure, his clothing. And based on all those fat factors, uh, they say, that's definitely the guy who just robbed me. And remember, the guy's wearing a ski mask, right? But they had an opportunity to see him, and they're describing his full, his full features, his entire body. Uh, and he's captured right after the offense. And there, the court said that was an admissible uh, single person show up right after the offense took place. Cook is also a relatively recent case from just a few years ago. And this was a case uh, where the defendant robbed two people at gunpoint and stole their car. Police track him, track him down. They capture him very quickly thereafter. Uh, minutes after the robbery, they find the victim's property. He's got this. He's got their stuff. Um, they both bring the they bring the victims again to another scene to do a photo photo uh, to do a, a live show up single person, and again the court says here there was a practical and necessary function we needed to quickly identify and confirm or dispel our suspicion that this person was the person who committed the robbery, but this single person show up was admissible under the circumstances there wasn't any unduly suggestive police procedure that told uh, that that said to the victims hey. Uh, this We think this is the guy who did it. Um, again, police were very good with their language and made very clear here, uh, hey, this may be the person, maybe it's not the person, we just want you to let us know. You know, We're going to show you somebody and they follow all the procedures, blind identification, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and the court says that that is uh, lawful and admissible in court. In Diaz, uh, this was a case where, again, it's another robbery. He assaults, robs, and binds a, laundry, laundry, uh, a laundromat attendant and flees the scene. Police find him. Uh, 25 minutes later, they bring the victim to the defendant, and the victim identifies the defendant. Again, court says in this case, evidence was sufficient, uh, and so uh, the court uh, uh, finds that the uh, that the admit that the identification was admissible in court. 
Now you can do this live or you can also do this with a photograph, right? You can look at a, a video, for example, of a crime and say, hey, I've got a photograph of this person and you can show the photograph to your witness as well. And as I indicated, that's what happens in Ray versus Commonwealth, which is the case from the Court of Appeals from February. This was a case where, again, that was the case with the informant who'd been buying from this guy for years. So there's no question the informant knows who, the, who he's been buying from because he's been seeing him every week for several years. The question in this case is, have the police arranged some kind of suggestive circumstances that lead the witness to identify a particular person as the perpetrator of the crime? And the court is very clear here. They use the language, the word identification doesn't automatically set off a constitutional firebell, right? So in other words, just because there's an identification doesn't automatically mean that police have to therefore use some kind of photo array. The original case, the U.S. Supreme Court case that we all kind of look to about identification is a case called Neal versus Biggers. And Neal versus Biggers has these famous factors that we always look at to analyze whether or not a identification is admissible in court. But there's two things to notice about the Neal versus Biggers case. The first is that before we even go down the road of analyzing whether or not the um, the identification is admissible under the Neal versus Biggers factors, the f to get there, to even have to analyze the identification procedures, the first thing a court has to do is determine that the identification process is unduly suggestive. And if it's not unduly suggestive, then we don't even go into any kind of process of analyzing the identification procedure. We don't, we don't sort of take it apart and look at what the police officer did and so on. So um, we don't even go down the road of, is there some substantial likelihood of misidentification based on the opportunity witness to see the crime, their degree of attention, prior identifications, level of certainty, all that kind of stuff. As long as your procedure isn't unduly suggestive, then we don't go down that road. And in Neal versus Biggers, that was a case with a crime victim who had uh, an encounter with a bad guy in, in a very highly stressful situation over a couple of seconds. But in Ray, the informant has seen the guy every day or every week for years, right? And so there, police are simply trying to confirm that we're talking about the same guy. And the officer had done a lot to identify that the information was correct and so on. So here, it's perfectly appropriate in the eyes of the court to show the witness the single photograph and say, hey, is this is this the guy we're talking about here? The guy, yeah, yeah, that's the guy we've been talking about. So that was okay. In Sample, well, that's a lot more like Neil versus Biggers, right? That's a lot more like the classic robbery case where, uh, you know, you have, you're either going to do a single person show up, you're going to bring the victim to the scene of the crime, I mean, to, to where you have the, the, the suspect uh, under arrest, or you're going to show the single photograph, which is what uh, the officer did in Sample. And again, in Sample, which is the robbery case where the officer says, oh my gosh, I think I know what you're talking about, pulls up the photograph like 30 minutes after the crime takes place. The court here says, again, simply showing one photograph doesn't automatically require automatic exclusion. It might be impermissibly suggestive to say, hey, I think I know who you're talking about. Let me show you a photograph. And you show that photograph. Um, though, and so here, the court says, "Well, you know, we're not 
we're not sure about just showing somebody a single photograph where they're wearing a mask right after the offense. That does seem a little bit suggestive, but they go ahead and they look at the Neil versus Biggers factors and they say, well, let's take a look at the factors and see, even if it is improperly suggested to show that photograph, is there some substantial likelihood of misidentification in this case? And so they look at the five factors under Neil versus Biggers. What was the opportunity of the witness to view the criminal at the time of the offense? Well, he's face-to-face -face with him. They're struggling. He's got a great opportunity to view him. He can't see his nose and his mouth, but he can see the rest of his body. And in fact, uh, he clearly can see the rest of his body because later on he gives a very accurate description. Within a couple of pounds, within, a couple of, within, within like a year of his age, um, his height almost exactly, his degree of attention was very high. Uh, again, he's focused on what's happening. He's not just some bystander walking by. He's very much focused on surviving this encounter with this guy with this gun. And his accuracy in his identification is extremely high. Like I said, he guesses his weight within a matter of pounds, his height within an inch, his age within a year. Um, his ex he's extremely accurate with his prior identification. And he's very certain when he's shown the photograph, he's extremely certain, yes, that's definitely the guy. Uh, he tells the officer, the officer says, uh, he shows a photograph on his phone, the officer's phone. He says, what about this guy? Um, I have a pic, what actually the, the language the officer uses here is, I have a picture of somebody that I was thinking about, but I don't know. You said you just saw their eyes. Uh, will you take a look at this guy and tell me, do you recognize this guy? And the victim says, yep. And the officer says, that's him. And the victim says, yep. And the officer says, you think that's definitely him? And the victim's response is, yeah, those big brown eyes, yep. Uh, and he says, yeah, and his skin, it was light complected like that. And the officer is kind of palish. And the victim says, yeah. So that's the language and sample that the conversation between the officer and the defendant, between and the victim. And here again, court says that level of certainty, uh, again, makes very clear that the identification was lawful and proper and admissible. And then the length of time between the crime and the confrontation. Here you have 30 minutes. Uh, so again, that this indicia of reliability were strong enough to outweigh anything that might be impermissibly suggestive about showing that single photograph. And so it allowed the identification to be admitted in court. So again, what's the takeaway? The takeaway here is you don't have to show a photo array necessarily under the Constitution uh, if you've just had an offense take place. You can do a single person show up. You can bring the victim to the defendant or bring to the suspect or bring them to a third location or whatever. That's okay. You can show a photo array as well. Of course, that's also all right, but it's not necessarily required in every single situation. What's important, though, if you want a reliable identification, are the kinds of things that we've been trained to make sure we do in any photo array, whether it's a single person show up, a single photo show up, or a photo array, is to make sure you're using blind procedures, that you're not doing anything that would be suggestive either purposely or, 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 or not purposely suggestive, that you use your standardized instructions, that you're very clear about the instructions that you give. You're going to have to account for the instructions that you give in court and explain exactly what you said to the victim. And then record what the victim says in back. Record their confidence levels. What did the victim say? How confident were they? Um, I wouldn't necessarily put a percentage on it. I don't think you have to put a percentage. I think it can be dangerous to make victims put percentages on things because people are funny about percentages. How, how much do people think 95% is? Do they not think a 95% is? And again, you know, if you get the jury to agree that beyond a reasonable doubt means 98% and the victim says 95%, you've just you know, bought yourself an acquittal. So you don't want that, 
right? But you do want to record what the victim says in their own words about their confidence level because that's going to be really important in court. I hope today was helpful. I know the law about this is a little bit confusing sometimes and we only had a little bit of time. But uh, I hope it gave us something to talk about. And if you've got other issues that you want to hear about in the podcast, let me know. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. For today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.